All right, 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll, we'll read all the way down to 13, even though, as I said, I'm not uh, entirely sure that we're going to get past 5. The Apostle Paul writes, for I, do not want you to be, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has, taken, has overtaken you that is, not that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond, what you're, beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You don't realize how much uh, you don't read every word of something when you've already memorized something. I memorized 1 Corinthians 10, 13 in another translation, and while I was reading it, my brain was trying to go to the other translation. Um, I think that there's a key that is presented to us in this passage that can help us to realize how important the Old Testament is. Um, there are various approaches to the Bible. Some don't understand the purpose for the Old Testament and uh, don't stray into it too often. Uh, other people don't understand that uh, we interpret the Old Testament through Christ and through that new covenant that he established. And so they have a tendency to just kind of lay it all out there like the Bible is a rule book and we're just going to kind of keep all the rules. But we have the key right here uh, that he presents uh, in verse 6 and in verse 11 because he's mentioning a lot of things that I'm going to get into uh, that are references to incidents that took place uh, during the wilderness wandering after the Exodus. And we might just look at that and, you know, say, you know, well, here's something that happened in history to the people of Israel and isn't that terrible and, uh, you know, they should have obeyed God and so forth, not realizing that that's preserved for us. It's not just, if you go to a church um, or, you know, listen to a Bible teacher and it's like a history lesson, um, they're missing the point. We need to understand the history because if we don't understand what it meant to them, we, we're not going to understand clearly what it means to us. But if all you do is just talk about the history and it's one giant history lesson, well, you can learn from history at any period. It doesn't have to be Israelite history or as we would call it, holy history. But there's, there's an anointing that is upon Israel and what happened to them, as it says here, happened as an example for us, right? So verse six, these took place, these things took place as examples for us 
that we might not desire evil as they did. So there he's referring to the specific three examples that are presented in the, the previous verses. But then we go down to 11, and he really opens it up even further. He said, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down, why? For our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's very important, and that should drive you to uh, get into your Old Testament, to, uh, to know your Bible, but not just so you can say you know your Bible, but to ask the Lord, you know, what does this mean for us? What does this, this mean for me? So uh, this is interesting because we have the uh, inspired apostle taking those examples and applying them to the Corinthians. So now we have two models, two patterns, right? We have that original pattern in the Old Testament that we're looking at. And then we have another pattern that says, okay, now this is how we apply that. This is how we interpret that. So this is the best way to study the Bible is as much as you can, let scripture interpret scripture. I have a real issue with, and I have a good education. Um, I have a master's degree in theology, but I have a real issue with interpreters that don't even believe the Bible, that write these absolute tomes of commentary and so forth, and then supposed, purported Bible-believing preachers relying on them and their interpretation. Friend, if you don't believe the Bible, I'm not a bit interested in what you have to say. I'm really not. You know, I hear a whole lot of quotation from uh, a variety of sources that um, they came out of the a period known as the Enlightenment. It's kind of an irony because it wasn't too enlightening after all. Uh, there's just a whole lot of doubt about Scripture. And, you know, I'm not interested in what any of those folks have to say because they're missing the, the primary point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you don't even revere the Lord and revere his word, I'm just not interested in what you got to say about it, right? That doesn't mean I won't, you know, sit and have a conversation with somebody and respect their viewpoint. It's just not going to have any persuasion on me, right? I know this is the word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. You don't judge it, it judges you. So when you read the word of God, you let it judge you. You don't ride over it or take, well, you just don't understand. We need to read this expert over here and this sociology over here and this anthropology over here and all of these ologies that we've developed so that we can interpret the word. No, you read the word and let it interpret you. The best thing that we can do is try to understand the language, which I try. I can read some Greek and I can read some Hebrew. I studied both of them, um, but you have to be a real expert expert to to be able to read it the way uh, you read your own language. But there's enough there for me to know that um, we need one another and we need other believing teachers to help us to understand the word, right? But don't follow a teacher that's a supposed Bible teacher if they don't trust the word, if they don't trust the Bible, right? All right, so um, what we have here uh, is Israel's failure during the Exodus as an example. It's the Apostle Paul's primary example of what happens to those 
who fail to discipline themselves, right? Discipline yourself. There's lots of things we want to do. And some of them are good and some of them are neither here nor there, but maybe not as good as we could do. And then some of them are just outright bad for us. And we have to learn to discipline ourselves to follow the right path and to pay attention to the Lord and to take care of business, essentially, right? Um, the apostle said in the last chapter, at the, at the end of chapter 9, he said, all runners run, but only one gets the prize. Uh, we talked about that last week. Now he demonstrates in this holy history, and that's what we're going to call this, this history of the children of Israel, holy history. Um, he demonstrates what happens to those who give up in the middle of the race. Now, you know, we pointed out last week that, you know, if, you, if you're running a marathon, you, you don't win if you don't finish, obviously. If you just sit down and quit, uh, you know, you don't win. But now we expand this out. We see the people of Israel in the wilderness, and God had offered them the opportunity to go into the promised land. But see, it wasn't going to be easy. They were going to have to fight. And see, some of us just want it given to us. We don't want to fight, Right. We just want it given to us. And, and I'm not talking about striving in the flesh fighting, but I'm talking about fighting through our, our struggles, our, our circumstances, our situation, um, fighting our own self, fighting against temptation, that sort of thing. Um, but this is a, a really good example of the people of Israel because in the end, that group that were delivered from slavery in Egypt refused to go into the promised land. And God said, okay, you're going to die in the wilderness and your children are going to go in. And that's exactly what happened. See, they, in the end, they accused God of taking them out of Egypt. They were crying out to God because they were enslaved and being forced to work, right? And they were, you know, they'd been delivered with these miraculous signs, right? They'd gone through the Red Sea. They'd continuously seen miracles in the wilderness. But they, it was hard because it was the wilderness, right? When you're in the wilderness, it's hard. The Lord can provide for you, but if you're in the wilderness, you're in the wilderness, right? If you're in the desert, you're in the desert, and it's difficult. And so I can either rely on God or I can shake my fist at God and say, why are you doing this to me? Well, God provided water for them. He provided food for them. He provided manna. He provided, you know, meat with the, with the quail and so forth. But they consistently accused God of bringing them out into the wilderness to kill them. That's, that's demonic is what that is. And then to top it all off, they accused God of bringing them from Egypt, which now they were thinking of Egypt like it was some sort of paradise Oh, we remember, you know, when we ate the pots of meat beside the, the Nile River and we had leeks and onions and plenty. Yeah, and you were working 12, 15, 16 hour days, you know, uh, as a slave in Egypt and crying out to the Lord. But no, we forget all of that. You know, life is hard, right? It's just full of difficulty. And so they had one difficulty, but now they were free and they were being given a promised land. They got right to the edge of the promised land and they found that they were going to have to fight and that there were giants in the land and they were scared. And so they said, no, you brought us out here to kill us and our children. So the Lord said, okay, you're not going to take the promised land, but your children whom you say I brought out here to kill, they're going to take the promised land. That's exactly what happened. 
So everyone over the age of 20 died in the wilderness. They failed, right? So the example to us is, you know, Christians who are, they're raised in church and then they give up somewhere along the way, right? They apostatize, they turn their back on the Lord or they just kind of give up and sit down on the side of the road and don't practice their faith anymore. Um, so, uh, Leon Morris, in his uh, commentary in the Tyndale New Testament uh, commentary series, writes this about our passage. He said, Paul has argued that the strong should have a concern for the weak and has emphasized his own example. Now he shows from the history of the people of God that the enjoyment of high privilege, that's their privilege in being God's people, right, does not guarantee the final blessing. The Israelites of old experienced redemption, baptism, and God's continuing help, but they flirted with idolatry, and nearly all of them perished in the wilderness. It may be that some of the Corinthians felt that their baptism and their use of Holy Communion guaranteed their final salvation, no matter what they did. Paul warns them that this, this is not so. Idolatry brings ruin. So Israel was God's chosen nation because of the faith of Abraham. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham's physical descendants would be the chosen people. However, that doesn't mean that everyone who bore the mark of circumcision believed like Abraham or had been chosen. Individuals, even generations of people within the chosen nation were called to enter into covenant but they had to choose to abide by the conditions of that covenant in order to be participants in God's benevolent plan for the nation. Many are called, but few are chosen. That's what Jesus said. Um, so this is like those, again, that have been raised in church. You know, maybe mom and dad are Christians, or maybe just mom is, or maybe, you know, they have a whole history. Their grandparents, you know, were were believers and parents were believers and so forth. But what we're finding with each successive generation in the United States, fewer and fewer and fewer of uh, the, the children of that generation are Christians. Until right now, the millennials, the so-called millennials, and, and then the next generation after them, uh, I think they're calling them Gen Z. This is just these 20-year increments. Um, there's fewer and fewer of them that are Christians. So, uh, you know, Gen Z, uh, people Autumn's age, you know, how many people do you know your age that are following Jesus? Two. Right? Two that I'm close to. Yeah, you and Felix, pretty much, right? <laughs> Felix and Blanca. Right, and Blanca. Yeah, three. So, yeah, it, there was a time when, you know, it might be, and, and, and apparently was, what, what, uh, has been called nominal Christianity. Do you know what that means? Nominal it means Christian in name only, right? It's like you, you know, you got a sack and you write Christian on the outside of the sack, but there's something else other than what's Christian inside the sack, okay? It's like, you know, if you got a tube of toothpaste, you take the, the lid off and you squeeze it onto your brush, you kind of expect that, you know, something white or bluish or greenish is going to come out. It's going to have that minty smell or whatever. You know, what if it was just like tobacco juice or something, you know? I mean, what is, yeah, that's mislabeled, right? 
there's, uh, there's old youth ministry examples like this when we used to do youth ministry. You can take ink and inject it into an orange, right? Say, look, what does this look like? Oh, it looks like an orange. And then you open it up and it's just like all blue or, you know, whatever the color of the ink was, you know, and it just leaks all over your hand. Well, you say, yeah, you, it's what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. That's what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, right? He said, you're like unmarked tombs. You're like whitewashed tombs. So he said unmarked tombs also. People walk over you and they don't even know they're walking over dead people. But he said, you're like whitewashed tombs, which means you're, you're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're just full of dead men's bones. Oh, that's just tragic, right? He was talking to the Pharisees who are very, very religious people. Um, so the, the external practice doesn't necessarily tell us the condition of someone's heart. And I think that we saw multiple generations that went to church, but they just attended church. And maybe even volunteered and did all the stuff, sang in the choir and whatever, but they don't bother to raise their kids in faith. Now, your kids and your grandkids, I mean, they have their own choices to make. And the best that you can do is be an example and point them in the right direction and teach them, right? He says, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. So, um, and all drank the same spiritual drink. So we might be thinking, what is the Apostle Paul talking about right here? Well, the cloud likely refers to the pillar of cloud that was visible by the children of Israel by day. And it was a pillar of fire by night so they could see it. And this represented God's protective presence in their midst. Uh, in fact, if you remember, when they passed through the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, uh, they were trapped between the, the Sea of Reeds and the Egyptian army. It was God's pillar of cloud that went in behind the Israelites and kept the Egyptians from attacking them until Moses was told to stretch forth his staff and the scripture says a strong wind blew all night and literally blew back the water. And they walked in the middle of that on dry ground. And then God's presence moved and followed the Israelites. Well, now the Egyptians see that there's dry ground and the Israelites have gone over. So they come roaring in in their chariots. And then God, the same God whose pillar of cloud was protection for the Israelites descended as confusion upon the Egyptians and their chariot wheels started clogging and they got, you know, because obviously, uh, you know, an army and especially an army of chariots is gonna be able to catch up with people that are walking, but God slowed them down. And then he just, once they all got in the water, he just closed the water over, uh, over them. So the cloud is the, the pillar of cloud, but there was also um, the Lord would descend upon the tabernacle in a cloud and envelop Moses in the tabernacle. And, um, you know, again, this is God's personal presence. Uh, and so that's what the Apostle Paul is referring to when he says our fathers were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea that I just referred to and all ate the same spiritual food. There was no food in the desert. There's no plants growing in that sort of desert. Now I come from the Sonoran Desert. Uh, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, 
And yeah, there are plants out there. There's animals out there. It's, it's rugged. It's beautiful. But they're passing through a desert that has less vegetation, right? At times, no vegetation at all, just rocks, no water. So how are they going to eat? How are they going to drink? Well, God provided food for them. He provided manna out of heaven, literally. It was a substance that would uh, land on the ground like dew does in the morning. I don't know if any of you get up early enough to see the dew, right? Um, you know, dew on the grass and so forth. But what would happen is it would land on the ground and from the, the description of manna in the Old Testament, it reminds me of pie crust. That's <laughs> what it reminds me of. It said that it's, it's like a bread-like substance and it was flaky. I don't know about you, but I like pie crust. I really do. But you got to, it's hard to make. I've, you know, we're going to do our dessert contest, right? And so I hope we have some, uh, some folks that will make an effort to not only make their own pies, but make their own pie. It's hard. Honestly, it's hard to make. But if it's made right, wow, wow, wow. Or it would, it would remind me of any sort of bread that, that was flaky. Like, have you ever had a really good croissant? If you, man, if they're cooked right, you just, you bite into them and they're soft and they're flaky at the same time. Uh, yeah. This is what they got to eat every day. And they were complaining about that, but that was their, that was their communion, right? They were all eating this at the same time. Well, obviously, the Apostle Paul is making this association with these Christians who were taking communion and who had been baptized in water, and he was showing them that the Israelites were all connected to Moses and following Moses and following the Old Covenant, and that these uh, Christians, these Corinthians, are supposed to be following Jesus, and they're all connected to each other as well uh, as the result of what they are doing, all right? And of course, the same spiritual drink, um, the Lord provided water for them on a number of occasions, um, and uh, on two occasions, he provided water out of a rock, and uh, we'll get into that in just a minute because he talks a little more about it. And then he explicitly says, that is Paul explicitly says, they were baptized into Moses. So in this passage, Paul affirms the relationship of the people to Moses, whom everyone recognized as God's chosen leader, right? That's who they were following was Moses and, and his brother Aaron. Um, that's who God had chosen to lead the people out of Egyptian slavery and to the edge of the promised land. So they identified with their lever, lever, leader. Um, in um, the Gospel of John, there's a story about Jesus healing a man born blind. Now, I won't go into detail with the story because it's, it would take a lot of time and I'm amazed by it. This man had never seen, ever, never seen anything. Can you imagine that? He'd never seen anything. And Jesus came to him, laid his hands on him, and gave him his sight. Um, in fact, he sent him to a pool called Siloam and he washed and then he could see. Well, you would assume that 
the religious leaders would be amazed by this and they would see that that sign of Jesus being able to heal somebody like this pointed to his divinity, pointed to the fact that, you know, he was chosen by God. No, all they could do was be angry because Jesus told the man to go and wash and it was the Sabbath and he wasn't allowed to wash. Are you ready for that? He gets cured of his blindness but because Jesus told him to wash in the, the pool of Siloam, they're upset because Jesus told him to break their rules, right? Now, the, the Sabbath was, was God's design, but they had created this list of rules that nobody could keep. Just so many detailed rules. You can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do the other thing on the Sabbath. And they, you know, they enforced it. It reminds me of the way some of these nations are enforcing um, COVID restrictions right now. Apparently in Austria, if you're not vaccinated, they're making you stay inside. And they were doing uh, similar things in Australia until recently. And people that went outside, I mean, the police are chasing them down. I'm thinking, where? what kind of a world are we living in? But that's what was going on in Jesus' day when it concerned the Sabbath. You couldn't walk more than a Sabbath day's journey or you were violating the Sabbath. There were many things you couldn't do. So all that to say, um, this is what I'm connecting this now to this passage where it says they were baptized into Moses. The Pharisees believed that they were disciples of Moses and they disrespected the man who was healed because he revered Jesus. He honored Jesus. And so this is what they said. Um, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, they're referring to Jesus, we don't even know where he comes from. Wow. It's a long passage and they end up kicking him out of the synagogue. He gets healed by Jesus and he gets thrown out of the synagogue because of it, right? Um, when a believer in Jesus is baptized, that's what you need. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized after you're saved, after you put your faith in Jesus. You may have been baptized as a baby and there are denominations that do that, but that's not biblical baptism. That means your parents believed in you and the community that you were growing up in believed in you, but you weren't old enough to believe in anything yet. You got to put your faith in Jesus. So that's why a lot of times we call it believer's baptism because we don't want to disrespect someone who grew up as a Catholic or an Episcopalian or Presbyterian and they were baptized as a baby, but that's not biblical baptism, right? Biblical baptism is identification with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You can't do that if you're a baby and you get a couple of drops sprinkled on your forehead. That's why when we baptize, we follow the pattern that many, many churches through many, many uh, hundreds of years have followed, where we take the person and we put them all the way under the water and we say, buried with Christ in baptism. And then we raise them up out of the water. We say, raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Here's where we get that, Romans 6, 3 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, notice, same language. These people were baptized into Moses. When we're baptized, biblical believers' baptism, we're baptized into Christ Jesus. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
See, we die to our old life, our old self. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. So we're identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we're putting our hope firmly in our own resurrection after death one day, right? And then as the apostle says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, this is where knowledge of uh, literature that the apostle Paul and others of his day would, would have been familiar with, that we're not familiar with, helps us to understand what the apostle was saying to them. Now, we can look at the two rocks. Uh, one rock Moses was told to strike with his staff and water flowed out. The other rock he was told to speak to, but he didn't obey the Lord. He was angry and frustrated with the people. And he said, must we produce water out of this rock for you rebels? And he struck it. And as a result of that disrespect of the Lord, Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. He was only allowed to climb up on the top of the mountain and see it, and that's where he died. And the people were taken into the promised land by Joshua, not Moses. But nonetheless, I had assumed until uh, I first taught this several years ago and did these notes that that's what he was referring to, right? The you know the rock represented you know where they found this rock that the water flowed out of and you know he likened that to Christ our rock but interestingly William Barclay makes this uh, observation in verse 4 that's the verse we're referring to Paul speaks of them drinking of the rock which followed them this is taken not from the old testament itself but from rabbinic that's the rabbis right rabbinic means from the rabbis from rabbinic tradition Numbers 21 through 11 tells us how God enabled Moses to draw water from the rock for the thirsty people. The rabbinic tradition was that from that point onwards, from that point onwards, that rock followed the people and always gave them water to drink. That was the legend which all the Jews know, knew. Now, if this is true, I, I'm sure the rabbinic tradition is true, if it is true that that's what the Apostle Paul was referring to, he's not, that is the Apostle Paul, is not validating that this rock followed them around. He's simply using that story as a way of illustrating or creating an analogy of Christ, our rock, following us. And then there's a, uh, a Greek... Um, I guess he was a philosopher, we would call him perhaps. Philo is a contemporary of Paul, and he interpreted the water-giving rock of the Exodus story as the presence of pre-existent wisdom among the wandering Israelites. Now, what does that mean, right? When Moses threw a log into the bitter water at Marah to make it drinkable, this is the first place they needed water. The water was bitter, they couldn't drink it. He threw a log into the water. It may have been wisdom instead of miracle, right? Some sort of purification happened or this created a, a better tasting water. Maybe the water wasn't, uh, it tasted bitter, but it wasn't poisonous. When Moses struck the rock at Horeb, 
It could have been God giving him a message of wisdom about an underlying spring beneath the rock and striking it would break the surface or break through the surface so that the water beneath would flow out. So if this was the case, then it is understandable that wisdom is associated with Christ here, who is the wisdom and truth of God. He's the pre-existent, that is before our existence, wisdom and word of God. The word of God followed the Israelites wherever they went, speaking and acting through Moses. So I, I like that. I hope that's understandable to you. One way or the other, the rock is a type of Christ. Pre-appearances of Christ occurred in the holy history, and we call these, these pre-appearances of Christ, that is pre-appearance, meaning before Christ was incarnate and born in Bethlehem and grew into manhood, right? He still was and always has been the Son of God. A pre-appearance we call a theophany. Um, there's one God, but there are three persons. However, when one person is evident, all persons are present because God is one. So Christ was also present in the cloud and the fire and on the mountain as the law was given to Moses. So God is three persons but one God, but that doesn't mean that the three persons are off working separately from one another in, you know, as though you could divide God with space. You and I need to understand that although God can invade space, He's not bound by space, right? You and I can't be two places at once. But for God, that's not even the way you think about it. There is no two places because he's above and beyond space. He can penetrate. So I've, I've often, I didn't come up with this example, but I think it's a great example. Um, there was a, I think it was a mathematician that came up with this example. So it's often difficult for us to understand how God can be one God and three persons at the same time. But I want you to imagine you live in a world of that you in which you experience three and a half dimensions, three dimensions of space. All right, just call it up and down, back and forth, side to side. Got it? Up and down, back and forth, side to side. That's the three dimensions of space. And I said half a dimension of time because we only experience time going forward. We can't experience time going back. We can remember, but that's not the same. We're not going back and you can't go back in time, right? I, I know we've all seen millions of movies where everybody time travels. It's not possible. It's nonsense, right? You say, oh, I don't know, Pastor. Okay, well, you can believe in those movies if you want, but it's nonsense. I want you to imagine that you lived in a world where you only experienced two dimensions. You did not experience, nor could you even understand, up and down. All you experienced was back and forth and side to side. That's all you experienced. Like the surface of this table. No thickness, just the surface. Now, if I, a three-dimensional being, did this, what would you see? What would you see? Would you see my hand up here? No, because you don't see up. What would you see? You just basically see three fingerprints, essentially, right? You just see the surface of my three fingers, right? 
in what appears to you to be three different places. Are you following me here? I'm one person. I'm, I'm one being. How can I be in three places at once? For me, I'm not in three places at once. I'm in, I'm not even in a place. That's where you live. I don't even live there. I'm up here. I'm out beyond you. All you can experience is this and this. So all you see is this. You understand? It's kind of a way to, to start grasping how much beyond our understanding God is and how God can be three in one. And that seems so paradoxical to us. But if we were able to think outside the box, so to speak, right? If we were able to think in up and down, then we could begin to realize that and understand that, right? So that's how we can see that, you know, we have God the Father, but we also have God the Son and God the Spirit with Israel in the Old Testament, right? Then he says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, this is really where we get to, uh, I think, my main point with us tonight. Here is the sad truth that Paul wants to communicate. In spite of all that God did for the children of Israel, they failed to obtain the promise. They didn't get it. Instead, that entire generation died in the desert. The apostle says they were overthrown, and that describes what happened to them. Um, in Robertson's word pictures, uh, he's very familiar with the language, and he helps us to understand this Greek word overthrown. He says it means, quote, to stretch or spread out as of a couch. So you, you're laying down on a couch. That, that kind of idea, that's one meaning of it. To lay low as if by a hurricane. So hurricane comes through and just plows through everything and just, you know, lays it low. Um, and he says, as if by a hurricane, we could say as if by a tornado as well. I remember in 1999, there was a Category 5 tornado that went through Moore, Oklahoma. And within, um, I think it was the day after that, I drove up that way because I was going on a trip that was going to take me through Oklahoma and then over and into Colorado. And then I dropped down through uh, Nevada and into California and back through Arizona. Well, I'm literally there the day after this tornado. Um, and as I was driving down or up, I should say, because I'm going north, Interstate 35, there was nothing taller than this table on the right side of the road. I mean, and a lot of the stuff on the, on the left side, right, of the road. So on the east side of the highway. I mean, there was, you know, where there had been businesses and houses and whatever. I mean, it was just really most of the stuff was low. So that they, everything was laid low, right, by that tornado, which, by the way, do you know the only building that survived and it was standing there like a city on a hill by itself? First Baptist Church of Moore. It was right there. In fact, that's where all of the emergency personnel went to, uh, you know, to, uh, to launch their, their assistance. Uh, they, they went to First Baptist Church of Moore. So I think that's really cool. Um, so yeah, this is a powerful picture of the desolation wrought 
by the years of disobedience and wanderings in the desert. That's what Robertson says. So today, we see many falling away from their supposed faith. And this was prophesied, by the way, concerning the end times. Are we in the end times? Oh, I think it's a pretty good bet. Listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, which those of you that have been coming to my Bible study for a while, I taught through this about a year or so ago. He says, the Apostle writes, let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is the resurrection, right, the end, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction or the son of perdition. That would be the Antichrist. What does apostasy mean? It means a turning away from. It means rebellion. Here's what it says in the New King James. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of judgment, resurrection, and so forth, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is, is revealed, the son of perdition. Listen, many young people who are raised in church have been indoctrinated at school and enculturated via media, both mainstream media and social media, to reject an orthodox biblical Christian faith. Ideological lies are spreading like a virus, infecting their impressionable minds. Once abhorrent and unconscionable attitudes and behaviors are normalized among the younger generations. And this is not an issue of age. Oh, you old people just think like that. But of education and a dramatic transformation of our culture. It is your challenge to speak the truth in love to your children, to your grandchildren, to your friends. It's your challenge as a young person to hold on tightly to a biblical faith in Jesus. A great rebellion and falling away is underway, but that's as it is supposed to be. That's the test. Will you pass the test? You see, when your faith is not tested, you don't know if you really have faith. But when it's tested and you hang on to it, now you know you really have faith, and that's what this is about. So resist these winds of change, remain in Christ, or perish for eternity. All of this makes the point that even those whom God calls, who participate in his mission, who taste his blessings, may still be disqualified. That's what the Apostle Paul said. He was afraid that he would be disqualified, right, uh, from receiving the reward. Uh, that's why he said he disciplined his body so he wouldn't be disqualified. We need to all remember, it is those who endure to the end who will be saved. I do believe that once you're saved you're, and you're genuinely saved, then the Lord is going to be there with you. Um, but we either overcome or are overthrown by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus promises each of the seven churches of Revelation a blessing. This is in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But it is for those who overcome, or the word can be translated triumph or conquer. Friend, you need to either overcome or you're going to be overthrown. You've got to stand and fight. Just like the Israelites came to the edge of the promised land 
and they were going to have to fight in order to take it. Well, the older generation didn't, as I mentioned earlier, but the younger generation did. So you read Joshua, they fought. They fought and took what God had promised to them and offered to them. You need to fight too. Fight to hang on to your faith. Now, you don't do this alone. You're not on your own. Uh, the Lord's not just sending you out there into the wilderness to, to handle it on your own. The Lord was with them in the wilderness and the Lord is with you. Wherever you are, he's with you if you pay attention to him. And he will save you day by day if you pay attention to him and obey him. Um, remaining saved is not merely up to an individual. Apart from God's grace and sustaining Holy Spirit, no one would be saved. Apart from Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, no one could be saved. Apart from the Father's willingness to forgive sin, it wouldn't matter what any of us said or did. So, um, as uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9, uh, or Romans chapter 11, I believe, it's in that passage. It's 9, 10, and 11 talk about uh, election, predestination, and so forth. He says, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, right? So, although I'm saying you do need to fight and you do need to overcome, it's not dependent upon you. You just need to be willing to cooperate with the Lord. Amen? You need to be willing to, like a glove, let the Lord slip his hand into you and move through you. But you've got to cooperate because the Lord's not going to take away your free will. Um, apart from God's grace and the sustaining Holy Spirit, no one would be saved. Apart from Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, no one could be saved. Apart from the Father's willingness to forgive sin, it wouldn't matter what any of us said or did. So it doesn't depend upon the individual. And with that point made, it is important to realize that each person must decide to believe and continue to do so. Faith endures or it is not real faith. Faith continues or it's not real faith. It's just a feeling, right? I must continue to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and I must abide or remain in Christ. Listen to what uh, the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 15, and this is at the, Lord, uh, the Last Supper table. He said, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know what? You can just isolate that phrase right there. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, nothing that I do matters, right? But he says, if you do not remain in me, warning, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Do y'all like Christmas trees? Oh, fix and put up Christmas trees all over the place. Do you like Christmas trees? Do you like real ones or fake ones? Oh man, I like real ones. I like that smell, don't you? They smell amazing. But you know, that tree that you drag into your house is already dead because it's been disconnected from the roots. Mm -hmm. And it's sad, and we, we put water in there, we put that you know Christmas tree food in there, try to keep it alive longer, but you know 
there's people that put Christmas trees up early. And if you do it, if you put them up real early, you need to put fake ones up or you're going to burn your house down because you know what they get like, right? I've, I've had a, a live Christmas tree and an artificial one up here on stage uh, one year. And, you know, the artificial, uh, the real one, excuse me, smelled so good and everything. But my goodness, by the time we had needles all over this stage because it's just, it's dead. Oh, well, what do you do with those Christmas trees? Well, we, you know, we take them to the dump or whatever. But, you know, back in the day, I mean, I lived out away from the city. You know what we used to do with them. Oh, we light them on fire. Now, I can remember one time I was a junior high kid. And uh, this is Phoenix, Arizona. It doesn't get terribly cold there. But you've also been raised in the desert and in the heat. And so none of us liked being cold at all. So, you know, if it got well, as chilly as it was, what, last week or week and a half ago when it got down into the 40s or whatever, we were all freezing. It was like, oh, my God, we're so cold, you know. We're out there, a bunch of junior high kids. We didn't have middle school. We had junior high, seventh and eighth grade. And, you know, going to the bus stop. Well, everybody, right after Christmas that year, school had started and everybody had thrown their Christmas trees out, you know, in, you know, behind their house so that they would come and take them away. You know what we were doing as junior high kids, right? dragging those Christmas trees to the bus stop and starting bonfire. Oh, my word, did we get in trouble. I mean, we get in a lot of trouble. Like school officials showed up and they were like, we need your ID. We need your ID. I didn't light the fire. I mean, I, you know, they're just going to get us all in trouble. I, you know, I wasn't a Christian and I just lied and said, I don't have my ID. All right. But that's these branches, right? You cut them all off and you put them in a big pile and they're all dried out and you just burn them. Hey, guys. You know what happens at the end of time, right? If anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, he was thrown in the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. That's destruction. That's where you're headed if you don't remain in Christ. You need to stick with Jesus. And then the life of Jesus flows through us. And then we know that at the end, we're going to be raised with Jesus. Well, the challenges to faith are precisely why we're down here on earth to begin with. We have the freedom to choose to be with God or to reject Him. Even beyond this life, we will continue to have freedom. Free will is an inherent quality of true personhood. When you cease to be able to exercise your will, you lose your individuality and your personhood. Does that make sense? You know what makes you you? Not your blue eyes or your brown eyes or your, your dark hair or your light hair, your height. Not even your gender. What makes you you are your choices. That's what makes you you. That's what makes you a unique character, a unique person. You have all of this genetic makeup, and that's great. But what are you doing with it? You're doing something with it. You're making choices, right? We all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have things, you know, that the Lord has given us, and we have things that we don't have that other people have. But it's what you do with what you have that matters. It's not what you have, right? There's people that are born with a ridiculous amount of money. They're never going to be on the street. They may not do a lick of work in their life, but they're just living in the lap of luxury. But what are they doing with all of that? That's what makes them who they are, right? Your limitations are part of this as well. It's the exercise of your free will that makes you who you are. So God's never going to take that away from us. Each one of us 
has a will and we have the capability and the right to exercise that will freely. As such, you or I can choose to believe or doubt or rebel. The wilderness of this world, and that's where we are. We're in the wilderness right now. We're not in the promised land yet. You're never going to be in the promised land, this side of heaven. Your promised land and my promised land, it's not a mansion down here. It's heaven. It's the holy city. It's the new Jerusalem. It's being in the presence of God. That's our promised land. But we've got to fight through this wilderness to get there. We're not going to have to fight to take the promised land. That's already been bought and purchased by Jesus but we're gonna to have to fight all the way there. From wherever you are now, however many years you have left to live, right? Until the Lord calls you home, you have this fight. We can choose to believe, we can choose to doubt, we can choose to rebel. Um, we have daily challenges to our faith. We have reasons to mistrust a good God and temptations to rebel and to do what I want in spite of what God wills. But so long as I trust God, I won't have anything to worry about. That's what you got to do, right? It's whose report are you going to believe? You're going to believe CNN? You're going to believe Fox? You're going to believe all your little friends on social media and Instagram and, you know, whatever you're on, TikTok and Smack Smock and whatever all is out there? Or are you going to believe the Word of God? You're going to believe Jesus. I need to trust God then I don't have anything to worry about. If I fear God above all else, I have no need to fear falling away. So I don't have to fear falling away. I don't have to fear, well, what if I'm not chosen? What if I'm not one of the elect? I, I just trust God. I just trust Jesus. He has me in the palm of his hand and he will keep me. And I believe that, right? Um, the scripture says, for you have died and your life, this is you, right? So if you want to follow along with me, you can stick your thumb up like this. This is you. For your life is hidden with Christ. Take your palm of your hand, grab your thumb, in God. Now tell me, who's going to get to you? You are hidden with Christ in God. Nobody's going to get to you. Just don't wiggle. Rest, right? As uh, Corey Ten Boom used to say, Pastor Craig uh, talked about Corey Ten Boom to our karate kids last night. Um, she was uh, part of a family that helped to hide Jewish people uh, during World War II. And she and her sister ended up getting taken along with those Jewish people that they were hiding to a concentration camp along with them. And they were inside their, uh, their barracks. And uh, her, I can't remember if it was Corey or her sister, had a Bible and they were able to sneak it past the guards. Well, they wanted to hold worship services, but you know, obviously that wasn't going to be something that they could do easily. Um, they started uh, struggling with, uh, with these fleas, right? They had fleas everywhere, all over their skin, all over their clothes, all over the blankets, all over, you know, all over the beds. And you know, they, were, they were so upset about the fleas. And I think it was Corey, uh, and this is a girl, this is the woman's name, she's Dutch, Corey Ten Boom. And she was so upset over the fleas. And why is God, why does God allow these fleas? Why does he send these fleas? And they started noticing that although the guards would stand outside their barracks, they never came in. And so they were able to have their worship services and they were able to read their Bible and everything. 
Later, she found out why the guards never went in. It was the fleas. Because the guards didn't want to have those fleas on their nice clothes. And, you know, so they just, they didn't. So the fleas were giving them the ability to worship. This very Corey Tenboom, who went through so much difficulty during the Holocaust, said this, and I'll leave you with this quote. She said, with God, don't struggle, snuggle. You're hidden with Christ in God. Don't struggle, snuggle. Amen?